I am absolutely convinced that nowadays the entrepreneur want to look at venture capital managers that will be here for the long run, that they're not here in a opportunistic view. We have high conviction. I've been in the market since 2010, doing exactly what I'm still doing. And being at Patria, we will be perceived as a permanent capital type of manager. That if the company succeeds, we'll have different pockets to support the entrepreneurs throughout their journeys. Welcome to the J-Curve, a podcast about tech ecosystem builders in Latin America with me, Olga Maslikova. My goal with the J-Curve is to make the stories of LATAM founders and funders accessible for global community. Every other week, I interview spectacular entrepreneurs and investors who share their most valuable lessons of building, growing, and funding some of the most successful tech companies in Latin America. My guest today is Pedro Sirotsky-Melzer, partner at Patria Investments and the founding partner at IGA Ventures. So Paolo based early stage venture capital firm that has been an early investor in the likes of Condabilize, Rock Content, InfraCommerce, Unico, Avenue Securities, you name it. Pedro, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Thanks so much, Olga. Great pleasure to be here with you. We should start with a little bit on you. You have founded your first VC fund, Warehouse, back in 2010. But before that, you had an entrepreneurial career and you also served in Apple as a global revenue manager during what I think was the most exciting time period of the company. So talk to me a little bit about this path of yours and why beyond making those career decisions and how did that lead to you running one of the most successful early stage funds in Brazil? Well, first of all, I'm from the south of Brazil, and I always had this entrepreneurial spirit in me. Even during college, I used to split my time between studies and entrepreneurial activity in the retail side, in different shopping malls of Brazil. So I started companies from vitamin shop chain to coffee shop chain. and those experiences were extremely important because at that time there was no VC funding. So to really grow your business, you had invest in the first unit and then the cash generation from that unit, you would open the next one. When you have hot VC industry, many times the entrepreneurs, they forget about this very basic formula. Yeah, why did you decide to start with the retail? So, um, my first professional experience as an intern in a, one of the largest shopping mall chains in Brazil, I could see that there were many gaps in the mix of the shopping malls. So um, Vitamin Shop was one in the south of Brazil. So I thought it would make a lot of sense bringing these healthy products to the community, you know, uh, back in 1908. And also Coffee Shop. Coffee Shop. I mean, it's something that we can be facing a huge economic crisis, but people still drink coffee. Those kind of things are less impacted by economic cycles. I ended up doing very well. I took that business for a few years. I grew the business. I had experience to manage almost 100 people. I ended up, you know, making some money out of this exit. So I decided to go to U.S. to have my MBA. I ended up being admitted at Kellogg. And then 
I had the opportunity to join Apple. How did it feel building this actual physical operational business, getting your MBA, and then having an opportunity to become the part of the most exciting company in Silicon Valley? So first of all, I think it's extremely important in different phases of your life, try to stay away from the flow a little bit and think about what you actually want for your life. When I was in Kellogg, I would say that 90% of the students trying to get into investment banking or consulting firms. And I looked at the tech industry as an industry that would play such an important role in the world economy uh, with the innovation and with the diversity of people, not only MBAs type of executives, but engineers and many different backgrounds. So I thought that those type of companies would be a great fit to me. So um, I really got into this position at Apple and the experience was amazing because of course there's the innovation part of the equation. They were just launching iPhone, but most important was the culture. They were absolutely focused on the executives that were in a very concrete way delivering the results they wanted. They had many very talented people willing to join Apple. So they had zero problem in firing people that were not performing. That experience of working with diverse people in a certain pressure to deliver results and being compared with your peers in a real-time basis really helped shape my professional style. But, Olga, one of the questions that I tried to make myself constantly was, okay, if whatever I intend to pursue in life, if all of those things end up being very successful, where I would like the impact to be, my answer to those questions were, I want to really impact my region. I want to impact Brazil. I want to impact Latin America. And of course, if eventually my work end up impacting other parts of the world, amazing. But I wanted to start in the region I was born. So living in Palo Alto and working in Cupertino, I got to understand the venture capital asset class and how it's extremely important for a large country. When I analyzed Brazil through the venture capital eyes, I said, given the scale of Brazil and the level of inefficiencies we see in Brazil, we need this asset class. We need these innovations. We need these entrepreneurs. We need this ecosystem really playing an important role in Brazil's economy and Latin America economy in general. I decided to fly back to Brazil. I quit Apple to really start my first venture capital initiative, which is Warehouse. Before I move to Warehouse, I have a question. You were in Apple during the period of time when the company innovated the most. Competitive environment, everybody wants to work there. They release breakthrough products. What do you think made you so good in terms of surviving in this highly competitive environment? I think it's a combination of different factors. I put tremendous amount of energy in whatever I do. I really take it seriously. I'm very intense, professional life and personal life. And this intensity really provides you the extra mile that you need in a competitive environment. I always had this drive to do way beyond than expected. I always had this sense of 
trying and exercise my capability of reading the context and really trying to understand the agenda of different people, trying to understand the pain of different people, trying to understand what makes the difference in different opinions, in different views. That exercise of reading the context has helped me a lot throughout my life. So when you combine this really hard working style, intensity, energy, with this capability of reading the context, I think it's a, it's a great formula. It's not always healthy. Many times I realize that let's reduce a little bit this intensity. It might be healthier to my personal professional life, but that's how I am. That's me. So Warehouse, 2010. 2010. What was your approach towards building that? Industry didn't know yeah. about venture capital. LPs didn't invest in venture capital. So how did you solve that quest? So definitely one of the pioneers, Monashis was already there, but definitely one of the, the first firms in the region. Well, first of all, I really had a very strong conviction that venture capital would play an extremely important role to developing Brazil and Latin America. We're talking about when you combine the countries in Latin America, about 600 million people region. So the scale we have, and unfortunately, the lack of productivity, the inefficiencies we see, venture capital is crucial to really tackle those issues. So I had this very, very strong conviction about the opportunity. How to start when there's pretty much no ecosystem formed? I always believed in skin in the game, so I put my own money to work and I invited family and friends capital to really start an initiative, a 40 million reais initiative, small, but not so small given the maturity of the market, which was very, I mean, in the early days. And my investment criteria since the very beginning was I can't have pressure to deploy capital. This is not about deploying capital. It's about being extremely disciplined in finding the right entrepreneurs with a promising business model. And in the early days, to combine those two things was very hard. I many times came across very interesting entrepreneur, but he was a part-time in that business. Mm. Oh, I still have my traditional job. But then I want to start this venture part-time. I totally understand why, but I don't believe in part-time jobs. So finding the right guy with the right business model was a challenge in the beginning. I ended up making few investments that did not do very well. And I ended up doing investments that did extremely well. iFood, I was the very first investor at iFood. What did you see in the founders back then when you invested? I thought it was a great example because the founders, they really had the experience in the market, not a marketplace as I thought, but they had the experience of interacting with the retail, with the restaurants. They had the experience of taking off a business from very limited resources. We see iFood today, an extremely successful case. And just to be very transparent here, I sold my business a few years later. It was an amazing return to our firm, but I didn't capture 
the huge valuation, the huge appreciation that the company had. And honestly, I don't regret selling the business. <laughs> you don't at all? The reason I don't regret, and let me be honest with you, <laughs> of course, I wanted to have as many companies with that huge valuation as possible in my portfolio. But more important than that is to be consistent and disciplined. So I had a very small firm. I was trying to create concrete cases of completing the cycles, investing, developing, and exiting the companies. The moment I had a chance to return the capital to my investors, in my perspective, that was the right thing to do. You know, I agree because it's easy to look backward when you already know how big this thing could be and say, ah, oh, I shouldn't have sell, but you were building the market. You were building track records and the venture capital business is the business of outliers and Brazil is a highly unstable market, constant crisis. Yeah. So what decision do you make when you have an opportunity to return yeah. Yeah. multiple X? But when you were just thinking about the potential, have you ever imagined how big that thing could be? No. <laughs> no. When you have a long-term commitment to your project, and I do have a long-term commitment to this asset class, because this is what I believe is the driving force for inclusion, for impacting different parts of the region. This is the driving force to bring innovation, to bring efficiencies, to really create a better environment for companies to foster, for people to live their lives. I'm absolutely committed to this asset class in the long run. So I don't have this transactional view of things. Of course, we are here to maximize returns, but when you look in such a long-term perspective, you're more concerned and more alert to consistency rather than to episodes. When entrepreneurs look at IGA, my expectation is that they look at us and they understand how we support them. When the investors look at our portfolio, what I want them to see is that, okay, I understand why IGA has invested in those companies. What are the elements that IGA look when they underwrite a certain business model? So what are those elements that you're looking for in the entrepreneur's on the founder's level, as well as on the business model level. What are the common traits of your portfolio? You have 45 companies right yes, now? Yes, we have invested in almost 50 companies. We had already 12 exits. And nowadays we have a little bit under 30 companies active in the portfolio. What are the things we look in a business model? First of all, we need to believe that the company, if it, succeeds, it's a big business. It's a relevant business. We can't spend our time or energy or capital in things that if everything goes well, it's a nice little business. Just to give an example, we have invested in the Umber, Umber technology. It's a construct company. It's focused on low-income housing. Today, we see that more than 600,000 low-income housing units have been built using Amber Solutions. So that's big. That's massive. The second thing, we need to believe that we have healthy economics at a certain scale. This is extremely important. It doesn't mean the company in an early stage are not going to 
burn cash. We are okay with cash burn as long as we understand what are the things we are testing and what is the minimum scale we need to reach for the business model really be a healthy business model. There are many startups that don't have a clear business model. For instance, they say, I will increase my customer base as fast as possible. And when I have decent customer base, sizable customer base, I'll start monetizing it. And then you ask the question, how are you going to monetize it? Oh, I will have relevant data that I will start lending capital to the customer base because our ability to understand credit risk is going to be way better than a bank, traditional bank. I heard bank. that narrative so many times. So I don't blame, but it's not the type of risk that IGA likes to take. There is already enough risks to take off a certain business that does not exist. Uh, there are enough risks of having the team working together. There are enough risks to really being relevant. But if you want to have an incremental risk of trying to find out the business model once you reach a certain customer base, I think it's too much risk for us. So what I like to invest in terms of business models are high gross margin businesses. I like when the entrepreneur, they have deep understanding of what are the things they're testing, how the value chain works, the nuances of a certain industry. What are the things that they have an edge to compete and what are the things they don't have the edge to compete? I like when the entrepreneur brings in a very clear way, these are the gaps I have. These are the things that I'm not sure about. These are the things that I have a strong hypothesis, but still to be proved. So from entrepreneur perspective, we like the combination of a guy or a girl who has the ambition to build something very relevant. And when you combine that ambition with a very deep knowledge of the market, with attracting very uh, smart people in the early days of the company, being able to really sell the idea to very smart people in the early days of the company, this tells a lot to us the, the chances of that business to succeed. We try to have this down-to-earth entrepreneur, execution-driven entrepreneur, focused and committed to building a real-life business, talking about the economics, talking about the risks, who really wants support from investors. They don't want only the capital. They want, okay, I want your support. There are certain aspects of my business that I will need help. This type of conversation, there's a huge connection to what we believe, to what we like. When you look back, at this experience, cumulative experience. What did you learn from your failures? And what did you learn from your successes in terms of investments? And how that cumulative learning impacts how you operate today? That's a great question. I remember investing in a company, which I don't need to disclose the name here. It was a great idea. And we knew from the very beginning that the three founders, they had zero experience in the business. And the business was quite complex, very tough competitive landscape. But we knew that if they really delivered what they were planning to deliver, we could build a very big business. We had this uh, risk factor of the experience of the founders. In my perspective, it was enough for a no-go decision, but we thought and looking backward, it was 
little bit arrogant from our side as investors to say, okay, we can eventually change the founders and bring a very experienced Qualified executives. Qualified executives. It doesn't work like that. So the business did not succeed and it was a huge mistake. So you can't invest if you're not really convinced that the entrepreneurs, the founders, they are the right guys to take that risk. So before we talk about learning from successes, how do you think about experience? Because when you look at the market creating companies in the States, for example, a lot of founders who build these huge companies like Airbnb today and Uber and whatever, they never had any industry-wise experience. Like they never worked in a taxi company or operated a real estate, but they managed to achieve this incredible results. And we can talk about how successful Uber is on a unit economic basis, but as a market-creating business, it's a huge success. So how do you think about experience in the context of your portfolio? It's a good question again, Olga. I don't think that the founders, they need to master the industry, but they need to master certain aspects of the business they're entering. And they need to acknowledge that they don't have the industry expertise in the case you just described, and they need to bring people that master the specific of that industry. So I really respect the founders that fill the gap early in time. It's an investor's mistake knowing from the beginning that there is no plan to really fill a certain gap and insisting and really investing in a company. So it was my mistake in that situation, not the founder's mistake. I think it's an excellent learning and an excellent piece of advice as well. And when you think about successes. I think what I see in common in most of the companies that ended up being amazing, amazing stories like uh, InfraCommerce, like Unico, like Avenue, like CRM Bonus, like iFood, like Amber, like Law Comics, like Contabilize, all of those companies that we have backed and they ended up being multi-billion companies. They had a very strong culture driven by the founders since the very beginning. They are tough founders. They really want to see if you are adding value to their businesses or not. They want to understand if you have the right agenda. So they are tough but they are absolutely committed to whatever it takes for the business to succeed. And many times it means stepping down from CEO. Many times it means, well, I'm not the right guy for this position anymore. I was the right guy up to now, but I'm not the right guy anymore. It's a founder that they go to board meetings and they absolutely open the kimono. And they understand that they don't need to keep selling their companies in board meetings anymore. They understand that that meeting serves to really touch on the issues that the company has. And this type of very pragmatic discussions and that they bring to these board meetings make the difference for their companies to, to succeed. And I have a very clear examples of that. <laughs> if you think of... Uh, CRM Bonus. It's a recent company in our portfolio, less than two years. Can you describe a little bit what they do for the uh, context? They are, they are a gift back company. Uh, they provide not only this gift back to the retail consumers, 
but also they bring intelligence to the retail to make better decisions in terms of pricing, in terms of product definition, in terms of offering as a whole. This guy, he has a very strong drive of really being a hard worker. He's very pushy with his ideas, but I think that's his role to be pushy. But when the board members, they bring their different opinions, he stops, he listens to the ideas, and he's totally okay of changing his mind. So this type of relationship, it's very healthy to a company that wants to go big. If you think of Roberto Lee from Avenue, the platform for banking and investments for Brazilians in the U.S. to have access to U.S. products. He had to live with regulatory risks in the beginning. Uh, he couldn't invest in marketing. It's a business of credibility. He had so many question marks in his business since the very beginning, but he was able to combine a very strong conviction of what he was about to deliver to the Brazilian community with a very humble approach of saying, I need help. I need very senior people early in time. You know, he reached out to investors and say, we need to attract very senior people alone. I'm not going to be able to deliver that. So he was always very clear about his challenges and gaps and bringing the investors on board of those complex decisions. So he ended up building an amazing business and we couldn't have a better validation when Itaú came and acquired the company. So these are two of amazing examples we have in the portfolio and many others. So it looks like the ultimate trait is this ability to leverage the investors and leverage the board members that startup founders have in a way, in a very efficient way. And very few do it well. Majority of people don't really know how to interact with the board members, how to interact with investors. So when you think about the board for an early stage startup, what's the definition of high-performing board and how do you as a startup founder create a high-performing board? I think, first of all, the board members, they have to position themselves with more empathy to the founders' challenges. Many times board members, they position themselves, okay, you took my money, now you serve me, you owe me a report. That kind of dynamics is very unhealthy. I mean, it's not sustainable. And I think you need to have the empathy to really understand what's going through that founder's mind. What are the things, the, the challenge that he's facing to really manage the business so the board needs to be a support, not a problem to the founder. The second thing, board members, because they've been sitting in different boards, they believe that they can be almost a, a professor in the board. So they lecture in the board. And that kind of behavior uh, really annoys the entrepreneur and also other board members. What I believe is a successful board composition is when whatever problem happens in this company, if you entrepreneur, if you bring the problems to the board meeting, the problem is not anymore only yours. The problem belongs to us. We're partners. So we've invested in a company. You don't need to keep selling the company anymore. We have to be 
a good resource to solve the issues that a company has. We have to have a, a very disciplined behavior. The board is not a place that everyone needs to talk all the time. We need to understand what is the topic that we need to address now. Who is the board member that can better help the entrepreneur solve that specific topic? Now we have an issue that no one has the ability to help. Let's try to figure out how we're going to solve this problem. And also, the discussions can't be all the time in a pressured way. They have to come in a more easygoing way. Let's talk. Let's face the challenges here. Let's discuss the possibilities. Let's acknowledge that we, we made wrong decisions. These very mature conversations really help the entrepreneur work in peace. Who are one or two great board members that you served on boards with here in Brazil? There's one guy that I highly admire in board meetings because he's very direct, precise, very honest, Alex Shapiro. I love Alex in board meetings. He's very uh, respectful. He's very clear. He's very supportive. He spends time with entrepreneur after board meetings. So, yes, for sure. And I also, my partner, Thiago, Thiago Malufi, I think he really plays an important role in board meetings because, first of all, he prepares himself tremendously for board meetings. So he really reads every single page of the material that many, most of the board members don't read the material. So he's really prepared. And when the meeting ends, he approaches the entrepreneur and spends some time with the entrepreneur really saying, okay, are you okay? What we have just decided works for you. Are you comfortable? Is there anything I can help with other board members? So this kind of attitude I highly admire. You mentioned alignment. That yeah. beautifully leads us to my last question before the rapid fire. IGA has been independent for all of its history. All of your funds were independent. And then in 2022, you made the decision to merge with Patria to sell the business to Patria. How do you reconcile the venture capital culture and decision-making process with those of private equity? Sure. So let me start really sharing with you uh, my view on Patria at the first place. So Patria is a first-class investor. Okay, Patria has been in the market for 35 years, $27 billion under management, partner with Blackstone for many years, developed an investment culture and investment process that turned out to be extremely successful, has the long-term relationship with their investors and a huge share of institutional investors' pocket in Latin America. And after IPO, they decided to bring different asset classes to increase their offering to their clients and asset classes that they didn't have the experience. So instead of taking the risk and trying to develop other asset classes, they decided to acquire managers. So they did that for real estate. They did that for growth. They did that for public equity. And they did that for venture capital. So first thing that even though it's a different animal, private equity and venture capital, the investment approach 
the investment discipline, the way I built my team, the way I track the performance of the business I invest, the way I report to my LPs, the way I make investment decisions, even the memo we write, they looked at those processes and they said, okay, I understand you take different risks, you use different assumptions to make your decisions, but I see a lot in common with our process, this whole approach. A lot of these things really connect to what Patria believes is the right approach. Patria was the main partners of Patria. They were, I think, smart enough to leave the investment decision autonomy with us. So they are part of the investment committee, but they don't want to make the decisions in the investment committee. And that autonomy really provides us to preserve the venture capital approach. Now, they have almost 50 companies in their portfolio, very large companies, in most of the sectors that a guy invests, healthcare, education, consumer, digital businesses, cybersecurity. So when you combine the companies in the different portfolios, when you have the aggregated portfolio under Patria, you have so much to extract from one company to the other. And you have uh, a synergies that we haven't even started extracting, but it's huge. So as we speak, one of my partners is leading a healthcare conference at Patria with all the companies of Patria. So they're going to be together discussing trends, discussing opportunities, whether they can work together. That's a luxury. That's a unique. So we have this combination of being in a large group with a lot of resources from a portfolio perspective, industry expertise perspective, they have offices spread all over the world and they have their own sales team to really distribute the different products of Patria. That is a big thing for a venture capital firm. Also from the LP perspective, there's such a credible institution, well-performing, and like you mentioned, that have an access to institutional capital, the most respected and qualified yeah. institutional capital in Latin America as well. Yeah, I always like to make the comparison, the same validation they had when they partnered with Blackstone. And that helped them a lot, really go to the next level in terms of investment firm. We are now having this validation from the partnership with Patria. So it's a win-win. I'm extremely happy with the people I've been interacting with, the possibilities we have to develop a long-lasting venture capital firm. I am absolutely convinced that nowadays the entrepreneur they want to look at venture capital managers that will be here for the long run that we are not here in a opportunistic view we have high conviction i've been in the market since 2010 doing exactly what i'm still doing and being at patria we will be perceived as a permanent capital type of manager that if the company succeeds, we'll have different pockets to support the entrepreneurs throughout their journeys. Fair enough. So we're going to move to a rapid fire. Okay. I'm going to ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's okay. dive right in. The first question is, what is one movie that every entrepreneur should see and why? If you are into movies. Can I change it to a book? Yes, you can change it to a book if okay. you want. I would definitely 
recommend The Seat of the Soul from uh, Gary Zukav. This is a book, it brings elements other than the five senses. It brings more spirituality, helping you make your decisions more coherent with what really touch your heart, with what is consistent with the things you really believe. I'm very touched by this book. What's the most common piece of advice that you give to your children? Address the uncomfortable things sooner than later, because those things will grow and it might be too late to solve it. I wish I got that advice early on. If you were not to be an investor, what would you be doing? Entrepreneur. In what field, what space, what would you disrupt? I would definitely try to be connected with things that impact the major pains of our region. So uh, I could be in digital health. Digital health is still a $2 billion uh, market in Brazil. It's a tiny fraction of the number of other regions. So there's a lot to happen to improve and increase the access for healthcare. I think there's a lot to happen in climate tech. Brazil, I mean, Latin America in general, I mean, represents only 7% of renewable energy investments made. And it's probably has one of the highest potentials for production. So I'll definitely would love to be engaged in sectors like this. What's the biggest resource allocation mistake that you've ever made? And by resources, we can think about money, we can think about energy, we can think about time. Spending time with people that were clearly not committed to what we had agreed at the first place. And the last question would be, if you were an alcoholic beverage, which beverage would you be and why? I would be a, I guess, a very nice scotch. Scotch? Yeah. Why scotch? Because, you know, it's a bit bitter in the beginning, but after the second glass, it goes well with anything. I always found it funny how our alcoholic preferences can actually describe our personalities. <laughs> Pedro, thank you so much for being my guest. It was a pleasure. I made so many mental notes. And I'm looking forward to continue learning from you. No, Olga, thank you so much. What you've been building through the, the J-Curve interviews is so amazing and so important for our ecosystem. You bring so many different minds here, different brilliant minds, very different experiences, very different backgrounds, very different perspectives, and that enriches our environment a lot. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J-Curve. It was such a pleasure to have Pedro as my guest. To learn more about IGA Ventures, go to igaventures.com. That's I-G-A-H ventures.com. And to hear more from us, follow me on Instagram at Olga Maslico with KH. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube at The J-Curve Podcast and leave us a review on Spotify. Thank you for being with me today.